0: Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. Of course, I have to mention that members are getting not only this rerun, but all regular shows commercial free plus bonus content and the bonus content they're getting today is I think a really interesting uh, bonus episode. We start out using an interview that was done on the show 99% Invisible. They talk all about design. And they end up talking about the design of the presidential campaign logos. And so Amanda and I use that as a jumping off point and then discuss what the presidential campaign logos can tell us about the parties themselves. And as I am describing that, it doesn't sound as interesting as I think it really was. So you just have to take my word for it. And if you're a member, uh, make sure you're getting the members only feed so you can hear that. Or if you want to sign up. Uh, I don't think you'll regret it. I think it was an interesting conversation. Additionally, members got an early invite to the new project I've been working on, so they're way ahead of the game on that. And uh, some have even been getting involved in helping to build it. So if you would like to get in on that, you can become a member at patreon.com or at the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And now, enjoy. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tim Wise, On the Media, The Young Turks, NPR, Decode DC, The Tom Hartman Program, and Dixon White.
1: I think it's important to know this history. Um, You know, it seems stale to some folks to talk about the origins of whiteness, but it's critical. If we're going to understand race and and racism, we have to understand that. If we're going to understand the class system in America, the economic system, we have to understand it because those two things are connected. So let's be clear. For those of us who are now called white in this room, that's a pretty new thing in history. We weren't white when our people got here right? Our people didn't come here as white folks. They didn't use that terminology back in our countries of origin. That term was never used to describe Europeans writ large. All European people have been killing each other for generations. We didn't think of ourselves as members of one big happy family or team. The Irish and the English didn't consider themselves the same. How northern Italians and southern Italians didn't consider themselves the same. So there was no white race until the colonies of what became the United States of America. And then in the mid 1600s, A series of court decisions and then the reaction to several rebellions, most principally among them Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia and the Virginia Colony, led the courts and the authorities, the elite white folks, again, still not called white, the elite Europeans, to create this concept of the white race, counterpositioned to African peoples or indigenous Native North American peoples, later counterpositioned to Mexicans, half of whose country we stole in a war of aggression, later counterpositioned to... Asian-American folk, Chinese-Americans in particular, Chinese, who we brought in here to build the railroads and didn't care if they died, and they did by the thousands. Um, the white race was created as a trick by the elite, as a way to tell poor, landless Europeans, y'all are on our team, don't you know? Be with us, even though those poor folks had more in common with the black folks who were poor and landless, and with the indigenous people whose land was being taken, had more in common with them than with the elite white folks. We got, this has been a hell of a trick because it's worked all throughout history. We still got poor white folks think they're going to be Bill Gates. No, you're not. You're not even going to be able to afford his computers let alone work for him and make a lot and be a 1000000000 He's not going to be Bill Gates. We have poor white folks during the period of the Confederacy that were willing to go and fight and die to maintain a system, the only purpose of which was the maintenance of white supremacy and chattel slavery. Don't let anybody lie to you today and tell you that wasn't what it was because the folks back then were brave enough to say it. The white folks who formed the Confederacy, they didn't, they didn't have a bunch of BS arguments. Oh, it's about states' rights. Blah, blah, blah. It's about home and hearth and family and kiss and kin. That's nonsense. They said that the cornerstone of their government was the system of white supremacy. Those are the words. The vice president of the Confederacy, every single state that left the Union said that was why they were doing it. They gave no other reason because they weren't ashamed of it then. Now, white southerners are like, no. Wasn't that wasn't white supremacy. It wasn't slavery. Yes, it was. It was that and nothing but that read the actual history of the time. But at the time, we got poor white folks who don't own other human beings, don't even own their own piece of land, don't own the shirt on their back who were like, yeah, I'll go fight and die to keep your property. Really? What kind of trick is that? Like if somebody was invading my block, threatening to take my house and it's my house, you would think I would fight to keep it. But the slave owners, they didn't, you know, if you owned 25 slaves, you got out of service. You didn't have to fight. So the slave owners got a bunch of non-slave owners to go fight to protect slave owners stuff. How'd they do it? By saying, remember, you're white. And if they get free, they're going to take your job. No fool, they got your job. That's what slavery is. Right? If you got to charge a dollar a day to work on the farm and they can get that guy to do it for free because they own him, guess who got the job? Not you, white man. So in a way, poor white folks would have been better off if slavery had been abolished. Because then they could have joined with black folks to get a different economic system, but they got tricked by this thing called the white race. And it's still happening. We're still fighting against immigrants, but only those from south of an artificial border, not from the north. (laughs) And we're doing it under the same pretense. Well, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna take our jobs. We should all rally. First of all, Mexicans can't take a job that some white business person doesn't just give them because they can exploit their labor and not pay them a living wage and not pay them benefits. So if you're upset about that, I mean, we would be far better off, white and black workers would be far better off to have those folks come in, join in a union, fight for better wages, fight for better working conditions, and everybody gets a raise. As opposed to telling workers, you can't cross a border in search of a better wage, but business can cross borders in search of the lowest price. For Labor business can sell their stuff across borders. They can invest capital wherever they want. In fact, if they keep all their capital in another country, they don't even have to pay taxes on it in this country. Right. They can keep doing business here without paying taxes here. That's a fascinating thing. So we're going to let capital cross borders. We're going to let goods cross borders. We're not going to let workers cross borders. And then we're going to say that's a good deal for workers. No, it's not. It's a real good deal for capital, though, but it's not a very good deal for working people. So whiteness, once again, has tricked White working class people into thinking, if we could just seal that border, everything would be better. And every now and then, they'll sucker some black folks into believing it. And they'll get some black pastor who has nine people in his church who will get up at some rally and will give a speech where he says, where he says, they're taking our black jobs. They didn't take, no, white folks destroyed those jobs. White folks closed down the factories in Gary and they closed down the factories in Detroit and they closed down the factories in Pittsburgh that wasn't Mexicans that did that. And anyway, these Mexicans are just coming home, y'all. If you invade my house, if you invade my house and put me on the street, don't be surprised if I try to pick the lock to get back to what was mine. Don't be shocked by that.
2: But I
3: know they're never going to tell you why I know. They only want to tell you lies, no. Never ever going to tell you why I know. Tell you lies, no. Never ever going to tell you why, no. They only want to tell you lies. It's time time to go home to take our boys away. To take our girls away. To take our boys away. To take our girls, time to go
4: home. Now, another instance of correcting the historical record, this time in the form of an apology. Back in 2006, the Charlotte Observer and Raleigh's News and Observer apologized in separate editorials for their part in a little-known chapter of American history. In North Carolina, 116 years ago, a biracial coalition of Republicans and populists had for some years controlled two Senate seats, the governorship, and a legislative majority. Supporters of the so-called fusion movement were mostly white, but in some counties, black men held elective office, too. All that came to a bloody end one November night in what's known as the Wilmington Race Riot of 1898. Spurred on by the local press, white mobs set fire to black-owned businesses and overthrew the city's fusion government. They killed dozens of blacks and ran thousands out of town.
5: Finally, in the year 2000, a state commission was created to investigate the episode. The commission concluded that the horror in Wilmington was not so much a riot as an insurrection, a coup d'etat orchestrated by prominent members of the Democratic Party. They wanted to topple the fusion government, and though they had big business on their side, as well as a number of regional papers, that wasn't enough. They needed the poor white farmers. And so, as Duke professor Timothy Tyson told us a few years back, the Democrats used the printing press to paint the conflict in black and white.
6: So they put this red hot, scurrilous, very sort of sexually oriented, near pornographic material out in the newspapers about the sort of black beast, black brutes, especially in the counties that had heavy black majorities. What you had to do was to shame white men who had voted with black men and say that they had failed to protect their women folk. They tried to shame white men into voting race instead of sticking with their economic interests.
5: Can you give me some specific examples of headlines or articles or cartoons that were uh, inciting violence and racial hatred?
6: Well, for example, there's a cartoon of a big black vampire-like thing with wings that incubus of negro domination you know carrying off white women in its claws the news observer would run a cartoon of a white woman taken before a black magistrate, for example, and the black magistrate, you know, being licentious as if, you know, oh, we're, you know, you're in trouble, are you? And then acting as though they were be sexually taking advantage of this. They interpreted any kind of self-assertion on the part of black men as really being about sexuality, you know, about taking white women.
5: There's a temptation to see this as a kind of an interesting historical footnote, but it's more than that. It, it was really... A watershed event for the politics and governance of North Carolina for a century.
6: Oh, this is the most important political event in North Carolina's history, with the exception of the Civil War. When we had a coup in North Carolina and the federal government did nothing, President McKinley never even uttered the word Wilmington. What that did was send a signal that you can run black people out of public life in the South, no holds barred, and we quickly see this happening. Georgia uh, had a very similar campaign in 1906 that was really modeled on what had happened in North Carolina quite consciously. That becomes the heyday of lynching. This becomes the time of disfranchisement all across the South, where Black people lost the vote. So it's not just a North Carolina event; it's really a, an event of national importance.
5: And the newspapers in Georgia and elsewhere in the South—did they mimic the News and Observer in its, uh, you know, racial browbeating?
6: The News and Observer, the Atlanta Constitution, the Times Picayune in Louisiana, the Washington Post, all of really sort of the Democratic Party papers of that era follow this line. And this campaign broke a lot of ground with that, actually, because you don't, you don't see this type of stuff during slavery, for example. You don't see this idea in the white media that somehow the enslaved black men are a threat to white women. But when black men wish to be citizens somehow the closer a black man got to a ballot box the more he looked like a rapist and you see these same images they echoing into the 1970s and beyond
4: they seem so near yet, away so fast. I must be- The uh...
7: never read about the Tulsa race riots in history books when you were in school, but it's definitely a story that's worth knowing about, especially considering the riots that are currently taking place in Baltimore. The Tulsa race riots occurred in 1921, and it was basically a war by the KKK against a very successful and prosperous black community, referred to as Black Wall Street. According to reports, the best description of Black Wall Street, or Little Africa, as it was also known, would be to compare it to a mini Beverly Hills. It was the golden door of the black community during the early 1900s, and it proved that African Americans could create a successful infrastructure. Black America's most prosperous community, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, went up in flames June 1st, 1921, in a KKK-led Tulsa race riot. This community consisted of individuals that looked out for one another. But more than that, it consisted of individuals that were beyond successful. Some of the most intelligent minds got together and created some of the most successful businesses. They looked out for one another. They created an education system that we can only dream of today. They believed in nepotism only because these black individuals had been so disenfranchised by society that they felt that they can only look out for one another. And as a result, money stayed in their community. In fact, it was passed off about a hundred times within the community before it left the community. Right now, when it comes to a black neighborhood, a dollar lasts in that neighborhood for about fifteen minutes and then it leaves and so they managed to create a society that was successful they were prospering But it turns out that white individuals in neighboring uh, areas were not too happy about that, particularly the KKK. So this led to a riot. And the way the KKK crafted this riot shows you exactly how deep that jealousy and that envy was. What they did is they accused a man of raping a white woman. But, of course, that man didn't rape anyone. They just wanted to accuse him so they could go into the community and start violence and trouble. And so they accused this man— A number of KKK members go into the community, and as one black man is armed, ready to defend himself, he's confronted by a white individual who asks him what he's about to do with that gun. And he tells the white man, well, I'm going to do what I need to do if I need to defend myself. At that point, there was a physical altercation over the gun. The white man gets shot, and he's killed, and then the riots erupt. Now, the outcome of this is beyond disturbing. The night's carnage left 3,000 African Americans dead and over 600 successful businesses lost. Among these were 21 churches, 21 restaurants, 30 grocery stores, and two movie theaters, plus a hospital, a bank, a post office, libraries, schools, law offices, a half dozen private airplanes, and even a bus system. So... The KKK goes into the successful black community and absolutely destroys it. And so when we talk about violence in the United States, and when we talk about things like white privilege or institutional racism, this is why it's incredibly important to take these issues seriously. Because when you look at the black community and you wonder why it is that they're angry, why it is that they're rioting, why it is that they're fighting back against things like police brutality and institutional racism, you have to look at the historical context of this country. You have to consider the fact that there was no restitution in this case. These people, 3,000 people lost their lives. Their businesses were lost. What they had built was completely demolished. And you fast forward to today, and you look at statistics and you realize, yeah, maybe things aren't quite as violent as the Tulsa race riots. But you have to consider the fact that African-Americans are four times more likely to get arrested for marijuana. In fact, if you have a black-sounding name, you are 50% less likely to get hired for a job. When you look at our private prisons, or if you look at the school-to-prison pipeline, African-Americans and Latinos are much more likely to be victims of that. And so these are the types of things that are holding them back. This is a type of institutional racism that we talk about on the show on a regular basis. And this is the type of story that we don't learn about in history classes. And again, you look at something like this and you realize that if you just create an opportunity for people to prosper, they will prosper, regardless of their race, regardless of their background. That's why education is important. That's why making sure that you give everyone an equal opportunity is important. And that's why it's incredibly important to take stories like the Baltimore riots as seriously as possible and understand that even though there are those who are violent and are doing things that might be considered wrong, there are also those who are legitimately arguing about something that they've been victims of for a very long time.
1: Scenes of West
2: Baltimore's troubled neighborhoods do raise natural questions. One is why they seem heavily segregated, generations after legal segregation ended. Richard Rothstein studied that question. He's with the Economic Policy Institute, and he says Baltimore neighborhoods reflect a national legacy of segregation. Generations ago, during President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the federal government started subsidizing a lot of housing. But they did it a certain way. The New Deal was a coalition of Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats.
8: The Southern Democrats were uh, segregationist, and in many cases
2: the Northern Democrats compromised with them in order to get housing programs enacted. From the 1930s onward, white people moved into new houses. Many were in new suburbs like Levittown, New York. Black people got public housing apartments in the same center cities where they already lived decades later there 's an enormous gap between the grandchildren of one group and the grandchildren of the other in one thousand nine hundred and
8: forty seven when Levittown was first opened, homes were sold to white working class families for about eight thousand dollars apiece uh, that is about one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars today. Mm-hmm. African-Americans were prohibited from buying into those developments, even though they had the economic means to do so. Well, a half century later, those homes are now selling for $500,000. They are no longer accessible for working-class families. We passed a law in 1968 saying that African-Americans now have the right to buy into Levittown. But giving them a right to buy into a place that's no longer affordable, when they could have bought into it when it was affordable had they been permitted to do so, is not a very meaningful right. In that half-century, the white families, uh, working-class families who moved into Levittown, gained equity appreciation of perhaps 350000 $400,000. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They bequeathed it to their children and grandchildren. African-Americans living in crowded central city areas were able to accumulate none of that wealth. As a result, today, nationwide, African-American wealth is 5% of white family wealth. That enormous difference is entirely attributable to federal housing policy to suburbanize the white population and keep African Americans in central cities.
2: Now help me connect this history to the news because we've been focused on Baltimore because of a police force that is accused of, well, a number of police officers are accused of killing a man and we have reports of a pattern of this kind of abuse. What is the connection between historic housing segregation and historic wealth gaps, and this kind of police behavior in a community.
8: Well, the police behavior is something that should be remedied. It's a, a terrible criminal operation on the part of the police departments, but it doesn't start with police departments. When you have a low-income population concentrated in the area, little hope, unemployment rates in places like inner city of Baltimore are two and three times the rate for whites, Well, you get behavior in those kinds of communities that uh, reinforces uh, police hostility. It becomes a cycle of misbehavior and police aggression. And it's attributable to the concentration of disadvantaged families in very crowded inner city communities.
2: In recent days, have you found yourself yelling at the TV that everybody's missing the point?
8: I hope I don't sound like I'm yelling. Um, (laughs) Muttering at the TV, let us say. (laughs) Well, I do think that Americans have forgotten this history of of purposeful racial segregation. You know, in 1970, during Richard Nixon's first term, he had the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, George Romney, the father of the recent uh, presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Romney said that the federal government has created a white noose around African-American communities in urban areas, and it was the federal government's obligation to untie that noose and he implemented a series of programs designed to force metropolitan areas to desegregate he um, denied federal funds for sewers and for water projects to communities that didn't uh, take action to desegregate and he actually denied federal funds to Baltimore County because it refused to desegregate its area eventually the uh, Nixon administration reined him in the program he was following was terminated. Uh, He was forced out of the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and we haven't had anything that aggressive since. But we once knew, uh, the American public knew, even moderate Republicans like George Romney knew that the federal government had established the segregation and they understood it was a federal government obligation to undo it. But since that time, we've forgotten this history and we think somehow these ghettos arose by accident and there's nothing we can do about them to reverse the segregation.
0: As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get Get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
9: It's graduation day, and the students are all dressed in their caps and gowns, their families in their finest, and all rose as the procession of dignitaries walked in. It was June 4th, 1965. Howard University in Washington, D.C., a predominantly black college, and most of the 5,000 assembled in the campus's main quadrangle were African Americans. The commencement speaker that day, the person making his way up to the podium, Lyndon Baines Johnson, president of the United States. Patricia Harris-Wallace was a grad student in the School of Social Work at the time. Most of us had never seen a president, so it was it was thrilling and thrilling for my parents also to come up and see the president of the United States.
2: The weather was just absolutely terrific. There was a, a tremendous a sense of anticipation as to what President Johnson might say.
9: Patrick Swigert was a senior, part of the graduating class 50 years ago.
2: One assumed uh, that he would have something important to say at Howard. We were in one sense, grateful that he chose Howard to speak at commencement, and we thought it was an acknowledgment of the importance of Howard as a platform for the president to say something important.
9: To set the scene, you have to remember what was happening at that time. It is June 1965, the civil rights movement was in full swing. That March, Dr. Martin Luther King had led thousands of nonviolent demonstrators from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. But for the students in the audience at Howard that day, there were some very mixed feelings about President Johnson. Lillian McLean Beard and Paul Wellington Smith were students at Howard and there that
6: day.
10: Some people just said, no, why is he coming here? Gonna mess up our
11: graduation?
6: He, number one, is a white southerner from texas and so many of us during that period were very skeptical about president johnson
12: some people
10: just the idea that he was a white man coming there to talk some people didn't like that
9: The president started speaking at 6.35 p.m., and pretty quickly he got right down to business. But rather than focus on his legislative victories, such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Johnson spoke about the cold, hard reality of racism and the suffering of blacks, or using the language of the times, Negroes, had endured and continued to endure because of it.
13: In far too many ways, American Negroes have been another nation. Deprived of freedom, crippled by hatred, the doors of opportunity closed to hope.
9: Freedom, said Johnson. Freedom to vote and hold a job and go to school or a public place is the beginning. But he cautioned, freedom is not enough.
13: You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying now, you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others, and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates.
9: What Johnson was introducing was the concept of affirmative action, the idea that you couldn't just open the gates of opportunity, but that you had to recognize that some people needed help just getting to that gate.
13: To this end, equal opportunity is essential, but not enough, not enough.
9: Johnson told the crowd that America had failed the Negro, He recited the statistics, laying out precisely in numbers just how the population was trapped in poverty, unemployment, lack of education. Then Johnson did something really startling. He explains that there's something different about white and black poverty.
13: These differences are not racial differences. They are solely and simply the consequence of ancient brutality past injustice and present prejudice.
9: And then the President of the United States went one step further.
13: Perhaps most important, its influence radiating to every part of life is the breakdown of the Negro family structure. For this, most of all, White America must accept responsibility.
12: Republicans were really mad that people were talking about Dylan Roof and how he was a right-winger, conservative, and racist, and he used the Confederate flag as a symbol. Now, all those things are indisputably true. That doesn't indict all right-wingers. I mean, there could be extreme liberals. That doesn't indict me. But apparently, these guys are taking it kind of personal. So that's up to them why they're taking it personal. Let's start with Rush Limbaugh. Uh, He has a theory on uh, why... We're all making such a big deal out of this. By the way, we're making a big deal out of it because nine people were murdered in a church. But no, Rush says there's a different reason why.
3: Somebody at the New York Times, in the midst of all that's going on in South Carolina and pretty much everywhere else, I'm telling you, folks, there is an all-out assault on the conservative way of life. The biggest threat they face is domestic political opposition. The one thing, ISIS is not threatening their power. The CHICOMs are not threatening their power. The CHICOMs are not here. ISIS is not here. But the Republicans are. The conservatives are. The conservatives run against them in elections. The conservatives want to win the presidency and as many elective offices as possible. That's the equivalent of taking power away from these people. The biggest threat they think they face is us. So anything that happens, such as this this horrible, sad event in Charleston, South Carolina, immediately becomes something totally unrelated to what happened in the event. What now? The story cleansing? A cleansing of Southern culture? What the hell is that? It can only be one thing. Southern culture is considered conservative, which is racist, sexist, is big, and homophobe. They're getting rid of the flag, and they're going to get rid of any other symbols they can. But it's all about... Destroying what they think is the last Republican Geographic stronghold. Stronghold.
12: Now, wait a minute. Uh, did liberals in the mainstream media send in Dylan Roof to shoot nine black people so that they could start a devious plan to destroy the last bastion of Republicans in the country? No, he picked up a Confederate flag, took pictures with it all, all the time. He had a Confederate flag on, and, and mention of it on his license plate. He he wrote a manifesto about how uh, whites uh, had to regain power in this country. He went to conservative websites, got those ideas, put it in his manifesto. He went out and killed nine people. And then you turned it around and said, oh, you see how they're doing what he just said, quote, an all-out assault on the South and Southern culture. No, Dylan Roof is the one who did the assault. Nobody else did an assault. These guys, they got twisted, twisted, twisted. No, no, no. You see, it's not Dylan Roof's fault. It's not the Confederate flag's fault. It's not racist fault. It's the liberals' fault. Of course. Right. Now, uh, O'Reilly's going to take it to another level. He's going to declare war. Ooh. It is an amazing thing to watch. The
14: USA has gone from being the land of the free and the home of the brave to a country dominated by white supremacy. No longer is it white privilege, now it's supremacy. The allegation that white Americans are actively trying to keep black Americans down. The only TV network that does not accept the blatant dishonesty that America is a white supremacist nation is Fox News. And some of us on this channel get viciously attacked for standing up for the truth. As Talking Points has reported, the no-spin truth is that there are anti-black bigots in America. Of course there are. But to say the entire country is defined by them is a gross lie. But there are problems in the African-American precincts, especially in the inner city. However, the problems have little to do with white people, rather a corrosive culture. The truth is there is no organized effort to harm black people by white people. That doesn't exist here. The real racism is looking away from what is really harming black Americans, the root cause of poverty. And as Talking Points has reported over and over and over again, that is the dissolution of the African-American traditional family, chaos on the streets in poor neighborhoods, and an educational system that does not demand the same standards of achievement that
12: are demanded in the white neighborhoods. Oh, I see. There's no racism left in the country. And you decided that you were going to prove that point by saying the problem with black people in this country is black people, black culture. Is there a problem of racism in the white culture? No. Yes, there are some racism in the country, but overall, there is no problem with the white culture. No, the problem is uh, black culture has disintegrated and... And and that's why you're having the cities, uh, the inner city problems that you see now. Where did anybody get the idea that Fox News perhaps hasn't diagnosed the issue of race in America correctly? Where would they get the idea that they blame black people for the problems rather than looking to see if there are systemic problems? Hey, why are black people uh, in the inner cities? Now, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, One was, of course. The history of this country that led to certain migration patterns and certain socioeconomic situations. Are you going to deny that? No, everybody started on an equal footing. No, it's not relevant. It's not to look away. No, no, no. The real problem is black culture. Gee, I don't know why anybody would accuse you of ever being racist or, or not seeing the uh, issue clearly. But wait, we haven't even gotten to the war yet. I don't know. Okay, let's find out who he's declaring war on. And the far-left smear merchants have the
14: nerve, the gall to say America's a white supremacist nation? Fox News is attacked when we report the truth? Well, you want a war, you got a war. I'm not going to sit here any longer and take this garbage. People who lie, run the country down, who are racist themselves, are going to be called out right here on the fact. That is the truth. And the liars who distort the record are now on notice.
12: Oh, my God. Are are we on notice? Is he going to come to get us? You're going to get it. I'm coming to your house. I am going to be the cop that stops
14: it. End of
12: this. (laughs) By the way, he's not ending racism. He's not declaring war on racism. He's not declaring war on any of the underlying problems. He's declaring war on the people who point it out. You left-wing smear merchants. I'm going to get you. If you actually talk about race in this country and, and how people are affected by not just institutional, but things that are stereotypes that that linger in our heads. For example, if you pointed out a study that shows that if there's a black hand on eBay selling the same exact product as a white hand, it's le- it gets a lower price and it's less likely to be trusted to deliver the products. That's a study. Can I talk about that? Or is science not allowed? You're going to get it. War. How dare you point that out? Same exact resume. You put a white-sounding name on it, it gets uh, called in for an interview twice as much as a quote-unquote black-sounding name. Study. You can look it up. Okay, am I allowed to mention that? You smear merchant talking about facts and science. I'm going to stop it. And more for O'Reilly. Do you want to fuck with me? Okay. you want to play, again?
0: Okay. have to play with you. Come on. Do you want to play with
12: to my little Okay, <laughs> yes. you wanna play with? Okay. Okay. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> this guy, the funny thing is, he thinks he's tough. Like he he walked off the set, strutting like this. Like, this, like see, yeah, left wing smear merchants. Got him. <poof> Got him. What about the real problems in the country? No, don't you dare talk about him. Don't you dare talk about him. Okay. There are no problems in this country. Well, of course, except for black culture.
13: I'm black
12: history. I'm
13: black culture. I'm black history
0: at a time like this it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well funded of course not everyone can afford to chip in so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't on my website under the contribute tab you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one time or monthly basis PayPal is the default method but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them so I have an alternative available for you to use and you can find all the details to that on the same contribute page if you sign up to donate six dollars A month or more. That's less than a dollar an episode. You get access to a members only podcast, including commercial free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So, again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of. And you can support this show by going to the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will.
11: Okay, I want to talk about deprogramming America. Let me back up a little bit. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s and, and 80s, I mean, it's still going on, but uh, in fact, probably its most visible manifestation now is Scientology. But there were all these cults in the United States. You had the Maharaji, who was the 14-year-old perfect master who, you know, essentially said he was like Jesus. Uh, a friend of mine was in his, his cult. In fact, uh, my friend got kidnapped out of that cult and deprogrammed by Ted Patrick, uh, and then went to work with Ted Patrick, uh, to deprogram others. Uh, you had the Moonies. You had Reverend Moon, who explicitly said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus. And, uh, all these Mooney followers. You know, you know so you had these cults. Now, these were, relatively benign cults in that they took kids away from their from from their families they they isolated people but they didn't lead to death i mean the the, the most extreme example of that was jim jones jim jones had a cult that was actually a death cult he, he moved down to guyana and you know they all drank the Kool-Aid literally and died nations can be seized by cults just like religions can be seized by cults um, in the, you know, I lived in Germany in '86 and '87, and 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 if you read the rise and fall of the Third Reich by uh, William Shirer uh, or other other books, I mean, I was there. I, I not during the World War II, obviously, but you know, living in Germany, I knew some old Nazis, literally people who had been in in Hitler's army, or who were who were. In fact, I knew one guy who was still a Nazi. He's now dead, but he, you know, he he was he's an old guy from that era. And what happened in Germany, and happened in Japan, and we can find modern day parallels to this with with uh, Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadovich, and, uh, and is it Bosnia or Serbia? I, I mix up that part of the world. Um, is and 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 frankly, ISIL, ISIS, right now, and and in fact, I would say, you know, Wahhabism in general. What you find are these basically death cults. They are they are cults every bit as much as the Maharajis or, or Reverend Moon's uh, is a cult, but they're cults that involve the subjection or murder or usually both of quote inferior people. We played with this in the United States in two big ways. The you know most recently. Uh, against people of all races in the 1920s with the euthanasia movement where we were sterilizing women who were mentally retarded and and people who were born with birth defects uh we were sterilizing them our eugenics movement while well, the eugenics movement actually began in England it came out of herbert spencer uh, uh, charles darwin's cousin who is an economist and and a few other people and and uh, you know came to the united states and we did it big time. And Hitler actually used our eugenics posters about, you know, cleansing the race, essentially, in his early campaigns in the early 1930s. So throughout the throughout the 1930s, and right up toward the end of the, the uh, World War II, in Germany, you had Germans who actually believed that Hitler was somehow associated with Jesus, that he might be John the Baptist, he might be the reincarnation of Jesus, that he, and Hitler himself was saying he was bringing a thousand-year Reich. Ein, 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 uh, ein Volk, ein, we- ein Welt, ein Reich, ein Führer. You know, one world, one people, one, 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 uh, one, one leader. Similarly, and, and you had German so- soldiers, you know, enthusiastically, not just going off to die, but also killing people. From Auschwitz to, to uh, you know, uh, Belsen-Belsen to, to uh, Dachau, although Dachau was technically a work camp, not a, not a death camp. But a lot of people died there. I think Dachau, if you want to draw parallels, uh, would be probably more similar to American plantations. It was a slave labor camp. And they were all over Germany, by the way. There were hundreds of them. And they were manufacturing commercial goods. So you had a death cult in Germany. In Japan, you had a death cult. Emperor worship, you know, when Admiral Perry first broke Japan open to the world in the late 19th century, as I recall, with his black ships arriving and just shocking the Japanese, the Japanese response to Perry literally forcing at gunpoint the Japanese to allow Americans and Europeans to come in and trade with them and interact with them was xenophobic nationalism and racism and emperor worship. The Japanese had, had always, to a certain extent, believed that the emperor was the reincarnation, or not the reincarnation, was the, the last, whoever was the emperor was the, the last in the long lineage that went back to the very first man. And the very first man was born from the sun, the sun god. So essentially, the emperor was like, you know, the descendant of Jesus Christ, sort of thing. The the descendant of the Son of God. If Jesus had had children, and they had had children, and they had had children, and had passed down all these generations, and the Pope was actually could could, could claim a bloodline back to Jesus. That's how it was in Japan. And people were so committed to this man that they thought was divine that they were willing to to commit suicide. The kamikaze pilots, all this kind of thing. This sort of, of uh, you know, death cult, R- Radovan Katovich and uh, Mil- S- Slobodan Milosevic. Katovich was a psychiatrist. He actually, and, and his jo- his goal was to cleanse the, the Muslims from that part of what was originally Yugoslavia, as I recall. And, and he did it by setting up rape camps where they would bring in hundreds of thousands of Muslim women and have good Christian soldiers rape them repeatedly until they were impregnated. And the the more blonde the soldiers, the better. Just the, Hitler was doing something very similar in many cases. These are death cults. You wake up out of a death cult when you realize that it was a death cult. Most, most people you know they get caught up in a cult, they don't even realize they're in a cult. It was losing World War II that woke up the Germans and woke up the Japanese to the death cult of Nazism and the death cult of Of Emperor worship, it was losing the war you know it was uh, losing the war in the in the, uh, uh, the former yugoslavia that that woke up many of the serbs or the bosnians i forget i again i've my apologies I forget which is which here in the United States, we had a death cult that was running an institution called slavery for several hundred years. We had concentration camps that we call plantations for several hundred years. That death cult is still alive and well in the South. And it's not just in the South, by the way. This is why up in Wisconsin, when Scott Walker said, Oh, well, we're going to make welfare recipients pee in a cup before they get their welfare. Even though, you know, drug abuse among people on welfare is actually lower than any other, pretty much any other group. We're going to humiliate them. Why? Well, because, you know, And he he mentioned Milwaukee, which has got a very large black population, because they're black people, of course. Racism and slavery are inextricably tied. Paul Krugman, on June 22nd, in his piece, Slavery's Long Shadow, he says, as recently as the 1980s, half of all Americans opposed interracial marriage. Think about that for a second. He said race made Reaganism possible. And to this day, Southern whites overwhelmingly vote Republican to the tune of 85 to 90% in the Deep South. Then he looked at another paper that was done in 2001 by some relatively conservative economists, actually, titled, Why Doesn't the United States Have a European-Style Welfare State? Why, it turns out? Well, because most white people think that welfare most welfare goes to black people. They're wrong, but they think that. And so, there you go. He points out the 2012 Supreme Court uh, you know gave states the ability to block expanding Medicaid who who turned such a thing down Twenty-two states, 80% of the population was in states that practice slavery.
10: There's a new thing going that's a rival to crack. Blacks talking through their nose, trying not to be black. They brought us here on ships, priced by size, height, and color. Had sex with young sisters and they bred the stock of brothers. Have you lost your fucking mind forgetting about the black struggle? Racism in effect, and they only see your color. Only Indians were here, not the black, white, and other. Be proud of what you got, because it's an improvised culture.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, showing up for racial justice. Now, as has been discussed on this show fairly regularly, members of marginalized groups are called on almost continuously to do the 101-level explanations of their issues and to teach people how to be allies. This work is thankless, exhausting, and often takes valuable time away from real movement and liberation work. But to achieve equality in any real way, majority groups must participate in the efforts to recognize and solidify immigrants' rights, women's rights, trans rights, gay rights, and rights for people of color, just to name a few. So how do movements engage the majority without ceding the mic or spending resources they don't have teaching allyship? Enter showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. This national network of groups and individuals does the work of organizing white people for racial justice. On their About page, they explain their role through a quote from Alicia Garza, a community organizer and co founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, we need you defecting from white supremacy and changing the narrative of white supremacy by breaking white silence. Unquote. Surge helps train white people to play supportive roles in the campaigns driven by people of color and how to bring a racial justice focus back to their organizing efforts in climate, economic, political, LGBTQ, voting rights, feminist campaigns, and movements. One of the most important things white people can do to challenge white supremacy is to speak up in typically white privileged spaces. ShowingUpForRacialJustice.org has a great action tab with local events across the country. There are affiliated chapters in almost every state. You can also sign up to start one in your area. They need volunteers to help with social media, fundraise, write for the blog, do graphic design and web layout, plan actions, facilitate trainings. Basically, whatever skills you have, they're needed and useful. Katie participated in the White People Take Action for Charleston conference call webinar last week. 500 people were on the call, and the suggestions, like pushing back on right-wing media and engaging anyone carrying an All Lives Matter sign at an event so Black organizers don't have to, were fantastic and designed to keep white allies in the background while also being visible support. Surge also provides a handy redirect for people of color trying to go through the 101 racism and white supremacy explanations. It can be hard, if not impossible, to tell if people approaching you online or in your daily lives are asking questions in good faith and with real interest. The beauty of referring them to a resource like Surge is that those truly looking for a way to understand and get involved will be appreciative, and those who aren't, are quickly dismissed. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If you're on board for helping break down white supremacy from the inside out, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about showing up for racial justice via social media so that others in your network can get involved.
10: I'm coming to you here in my truck today. I got a Ford F one fifty. And I like it. Yeah, I'm a redneck. I always have been. But it's rednecks reformed. Many years I was a racist. And I didn't like blacks. I used to come in word and whatnot. And now I come a point and realize there's some personal experiences. white people are racist, not all of them, but white culture is. Our white country is, our nation is, our American culture is full of white supremacy. We live in a white supremacist culture that caters to white people. Everything from the media to education to art to culture to politics is whitewashed. What is not whitewashed as far as the status quo, as far as the dominant culture, everything's whitewashed. This country was built for white people. And it's time us Americans, us white Americans, came to terms with that and realized we're benefiting from that. We created slavery. We created a culture and a system of white supremacy that has benefited us for 400 years. You think maybe it's about time we stop being lazy as white people and take some fucking responsibility. I can tell you as an ex-redneck, as an ex-racist, now I'm still a redneck. I boat, fish, hunt, whatever the fuck I wanna do. I'll drink a beer, I eat too much pork, barbecue, you can tell looking at me. But my point is, yeah, y'all can call me fat. I don't give a damn. I'm going to have, always have a lot of haters, always have. But there's a new South, new America, that's called white racial responsibility. And it's time we all took some, y'all. So let's take a little bit of white racial responsibility. Let's start by standing up against it. Let's recognize that in every American institution, education, financial, health care, justice, for God's sake, it's injustice in the police departments and our police officers, many of them. And when I talk, I'm not talking about all. I ain't saying all white people are bad. I'm saying we've got an evil called white supremacy in this damn culture. Stop being defensive. Get off your fucking ass and do something about it. Speak up. Don't ever listen. Don't ever, ever ignore racism. If you hear something racist, fucking stand up as a white American. Take some fucking responsibility. It's the inaction. That is always destroying other peoples and other nations. It's the inaction. It's the indifference. It's that damn. Oh, well, it'll take care of itself attitude. Oh, I don't see color. By God, you better fucking see color. If you don't see color, then how the fuck are you gonna help it? How are you gonna fix it? Our system sees color. Our culture. See color? We're indoctrinated to see color. Don't tell me you can't fucking see color. Motherfucker, see color. See the black experience. See the brown experience. See what we did to Native Americans. See what colonization did. Look at what the fuck with the Crusades did. Get educated. Open a fucking book. Read. Watch a fucking video. Watch Roots again. <laughs> watch Malcolm X do something. Think outside of the fucking white box. Black people live it every fucking day. Brown people live it every fucking day. Think beyond your own fucking experience. Think beyond your own self. Imagine the privileges that you have just because of your fucking skin. I ain't saying you ain't suffered. We all suffer. Stop being defensive. What I'm saying is, is that we get certain privileges. We're not harassed by the police. Okay? We're not denied a house loan or denied to live in a neighborhood. We're not uncomfortable living in rural America. I'm not uncomfortable living in rural America, but I tell you what, a lot of black people don't even want to fucking drive through where I live. Why? Racist. We're fucking racist. So I'm not saying why people are bad. Stop being defensive. I'm saying take some fucking responsibility. All people are equal. God made us that way. Well, let's knock this fucking supremacy out of our fucking country. So I'm just saying, white America, wake up, look in the fucking racial mirror and look at what we have done. Look at how we benefit and let's do something about it. Let's speak up, let's vote. Let's create legislation and policies to fight against this shit. Let's make things fair and equal. Let's take some responsibility and never, ever, ever ignore any form of racism that you see or experience or witness. Always speak up and act up. Please.